Lloyd, and writer and publisher based all based in London, uh, Jamie Sutcliffe. Uh, Jamie will be discussing the work of Kitty Clark. Uh, Catherine Lloyd will be reviewing a handful of London shows, including Ragnar Kjartansson at the Barbican and Samara Scott at the Pump House Gallery. But first, let's start with David's review of Elizabeth Price's curated exhibition, In a Dream You Saw a Way to Survive and You, and you Were Full of Joy, uh, which is currently on show at the Whitworth Gallery in Manchester. I wondered, David, if we could begin by discussing some of uh, Price's approaches to curating this show, as large as she's, she's known as an artist. So how did she go about uh, curating this show? Okay. Um, she has said that she curated the exhibition um, as an artist would curate it, um, in the way that she makes an artwork. And since she's a video artist, yeah. in that way of um, making a kind of really complex storyboard and then putting it together like that. In fact, I went to her studio beforehand and yeah. she had literally a huge pin board with photos of the works that were to be in the show stuck all over the pin board, um, which was really interesting to see because it was a, you know, literally a storyboard. Yeah. And that's how she arranges things. Um, and there's about, how many show, how many works in the show? About 103? Well, well it's billed as having 70 artists. But the thing is, she's also got um, some recordings. She's got, for example, Prince Buster, who's this singer who I think just died, actually. Okay. Um, and she's got um, quite a lot of things which actually are artifacts rather mm -hmm. than art, which is one of the interesting things about the show, that it mixes these things. Um, and there are writings, there's some writings in the catalogue and elsewhere. Um, so I counted about 100 yeah. people altogether. So it's pretty dense, large, mixed exhibition. And it's split over three, uh, four uh, sort of subdivisions of uh, titles called Sleeping, yeah. Working, Morning and Dancing. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, so what you get is this very large space all on one floor um, with a huge number of objects and artworks in it starting from before Christ there's um, a cinerary urn from about mm -hmm. 150 BC um, you know which is like a, it's not an urn shape it's a rectangular thing yeah. with a battle scene underneath and then a a uh, reclining figure who is at a funeral feast on the top of it. Um, so it goes from that, yes. you know, right up to artists who are working now. Yeah. Um, and that, that image of the reclining figure, that's sort of, it's one of the, the sort of leitmotifs really that runs through the show. A lot of this, as you sort of, you sort of describe this horizontality, uh, that Price sort of incorporates through the show. So that's kind of a, a recurring motif that sort of... Well, the show, okay, the show is billed as being about the horizontal in mm -hmm. art. That's the ostensible official premise, that it's about horizontality in yeah. art. So that means you get, um, like, Carl Andre. There's not a Carl Andre, there's a photograph of... Uh, the, the tape bricks, oh basically, yes. yeah. equivalent aid or whatever it is, yeah. and um, there's a whole load of sculptures and photographs of people in lying positions, and then there's Giulio Paoli, 
<coughs> Paulini's um, stack of paper, necessaire, yeah. which is a kind of, and a whole load of things that are either figurative or abstract, mm -hmm. but can be described as horizontal. So that's the ostensible premise. So it's, uh, but I was quite interested because um, I got to see her original um, outline for the yeah. show, which was very clear. And she says what she's done is she's done this sort of formal plan for a show with all these different artworks and artifacting. And then she's sort of woven through it a, a story. Um, and the best way to really look at the show is to imagine that it's the story of um, a bit like one day in someone's life, but a sort of a day that's symbolic of a life. Mm -hmm. So you find them sleeping, so that's the sleeping section, and then you, um, they work, mm -hmm. and that's quite a sort of grim experience, the way it's a labour yeah. thing. I mean, she's got lots of landscape imagery in that section, and it's, again, that ostensibly is a section about landscape, but it's, she said it's really a landscape in which people are labouring. Mm -hmm. um, and there's, yeah, an awful lot of kind of referencing going on. Um, there's the guy who was um, Captain Scott's and uh, artist, basically. Right. Um, I've his name, Edward someone. He did these, so she's got these pictures of icebergs. But when you look into him, you know, you find out that he died in the tent with Scott oh, in the see. snow. Okay. So and a lot of the things have these sort of, Backstories. Mm. Anyway, well, you, you get this. You describe you describe the, this sort of weight of her looking. You feel like Elizabeth Price has spent a lot of time looking at these objects, and you you feel similarly. I wouldn't say indebted, but you know, similarly attuned to that sort of prolonged look of uh, engaging with the works as well. You sort of you touch upon that idea of duration a little bit. Well, that um, yeah, they're very. Um, she says she's done it as a kind of hallucinatory narrative, and so it's there's a lot of connections between the things, mm -hmm. um, and you're constantly trying to connect one thing with the other to sort of get into her mind a little bit. Um, and in your conversations with her, because I know you've you've spoken to Elizabeth Price about this show, did she reveal anything about those connections that perhaps? were more illuminating than or illuminated some of the context of the show um, hmm, that's a good question we were mostly focused on um, just looking at the text actually for that okay um, but I think I, I was very interested because like this story goes through the working and then the there's a death there's a mourning mm -hmm. section so if you your imaginary character dies and then in the final section, she's got this dancing section, which is what it's called. Um, but it's also a kind of dream section mm -hmm. of the exhibition. And it's the most gothic, really, of all the sections, because what you've got is this huge ambiguity about whether this person comes back to life in some sort of 
um, resurrection or uh, you know, she uses the word insurrection because this is essentially a political show. Mm. There's a political undercurrent through it. Um, which is why I mentioned the Gambon in my article. Yeah. You know, there's this feeling that there's this grim sort of work situation. And I think in a very subtle way, she's trying to comment on contemporary society. Mm. You know, I mean, she's basically left-wing, member of the Labour Party, describes her Catholic parents as socialists. Yeah. This, you can feel, once you're aware of this, you feel it running through the show. But in this last section of the show, there's this very gothic sense that this insurrection might be um, just a dream. Mm. You're never quite sure. <laughs> and she's managed to sort of work this into her. I mean, this is all very clear in her outline that I read. And obviously written down like that, it's much clearer than it is yeah. when you're in the show looking at the objects. But when you're kind of aware of this structure and this idea of a, a sort of going from morning to night kind of thing, um, it does make sense, you know, it falls into place. If I sort of say this to you in the show, you'll go, oh, yes, I see. Sort of well, there's almost a narrative, um, perhaps. There is, yeah. a there is a narrative, and she specifically says, mm. and she says in the catalogue, you know, that there is a narrative that there's a formal idea mm -hmm. and a narrative idea and that's how she's curated the show by putting these two things together um, in that way and of course where you know where any two things meet you get this you get something else and it's this partly this dreamy gothic thing and partly this political um, and is it in a sense then are these two things the way they rub up against each other is that where the charge of the the, the work happens in a way this idea of the political comes up through these two things, either the labor and the experience of those things versus the dreams and the kind of the toll, uh, how these things are experienced in fantasy. Are these, are these the spaces through which then this political force comes through? Is that how she's mapped that or how you experience it perhaps? Um, yeah, well, uh, I mentioned in the article, I mentioned Alfred Gell. He yeah. wrote this article of called... Um, something like artworks as traps and traps as artworks, the other way around, um, which is really about whether an artifact like a fishing net yeah. or a eel trap can be an artwork. And he concludes that it can. But he says um, the thing about objects is they have no essence. Yeah. And so, therefore, they can be promiscuous. And I noticed this um, because this is a word she uses, mm. this word promiscuous. She says that her connections between the artworks are promiscuous, um, which is kind of, you know, an interesting sort of way of explaining mm. how you curated your show. Yeah. So obviously, you know, you noticed this. Um, and she said this thing about hallucinatory narrative. So it's quite, um, you know, quite interesting language she uses to describe how she makes the connections. Well, uh, I mean, you only think about her work, as, you know, I think of those images that she used in the, the choir with, you know, the Woolworths and the images of the Shangri-Las and the slow motion unfolding yeah. of the body or, and similarly. Well, yeah, this, I mean, it's interesting because Woolworths choir, her video, which is 
arguably her masterpiece to date, um, is a lot more... I mean, this show is dark, but I think Wolves Choir is... It's very disturbing, actually. Mm. You know, it is genuinely disturbing. Um, whereas it was interesting, because I've seen quite a few of her works, but this exhibition was interesting to see because it's different. Uh, it doesn't quite work in the same way, although it does sort of have a... not quite sure how I would find evidence for this, but I had the feeling that she was doing something in reverse. She was taking light and turning it into darkness mm -hmm. <laughs> in some kind of way. Yeah. Um, well, you describe... Uh, there's a lovely line you describe... Um, that there is fun in the show, but it remains grim even when it is fun, and I, I, I quite, I sort of, I could kind of identify with that. Well, there are, yeah, there's a huge mixture of artworks, so you can. She's kind of, in a sense, had fun with mixing the things yeah. together, and you get, like, you get Joe Spence, a photograph of her floating on this swimming pool. Yeah, very nice photograph, colourful. But of course, Joe Spence's work is entirely about the fact that she's dying of cancer. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the work is kind of like that. But then there's another bit of that where the Joe Spence, who is kind of cruciform in her floating in the water, yeah, um, which I guess is deliberate, but she's next to um, um, an embroidery, a l sort of late medieval embroidery of the dead Christ. And it's impossible not to make a connection, mm. you know, for example. And there's a lot of that kind of thing going on. Um, there's Loey Fuller, the dancer doing oh, her yeah. famous butterfly yeah. dance. That's projected on a huge screen that's hanging between the morning section and the dancing section. And it's very kind of happy piece, I suppose you could say. Well, well. it's certainly ecstatic. It has a kind of ecstatic, exuberant, yeah. repetitive quality to it, this movement and the colour, if I remember rightly. There is but colour. then it's, you see, the thing is, you've got behind it, you've got Carolee Schneeman's Meet Joy. Yeah which actually is a rather melancholy piece. Yeah. And I thought became more so for being um, associated with this idea of labour and with death mm. somehow. It actually made it... Because I've seen it before and never knew really what to think about it. But it seemed to me that the focus that Elizabeth Price had brought to that, for example, uh, made it something much more interesting to me you know, it's like she's really focusing on things, looking at them in a particular way. Mm. So this, this sort of themed sections um, does yeah, help to focus sorry. art in a certain way and make you look at it in a certain way. Yeah, you describe how, in a way, she's always uh, referring to these inverted commas, like looking through the show is like looking at through inverted commas. You even go, suppose, just describe a scene from Hamlet, uh, you know, the play within the play within that um and you even end on a quote actually from hamlet i think um yeah all kinds of art of all kinds is made to turn as to the rottenness in the state of denmark well yeah for denmark read britain i think yeah um, i mean yeah <laughs> obviously yes you know, it's, yeah um you know yeah it's a, it's, uh, it's quite a rich uh way of describing i think her show um well that yeah i mean i ended up mm, there is something very musical about what she does. And the other thing is, I kind of came to that Shakespeare thing because I was reading this Winifred and Watney. Yeah. And I was reading it 
partly in any case, but partly because of Elizabeth Price, actually. Because it's really... Um, I can't remember the title of it now. It's called something like um, The Words Poet Use or something like that. Or oh, right, okay. It's, it's it's not, yeah, yeah, the title isn't mentioned in the... Okay. But it's about um, how poets write. Uh, but it's, it's a sort of... Um, it was done a little bit in response to the new criticism and the kind of post-structuralist mm -hmm. literary criticism, you know, the, the analytical French-style literary criticism yeah. that was going on. Nowotny was not against that at all. She was fascinated by it. But she, like Price, was fascinated by systems, but at the same time um, saw the problem with systems, mm. that they're never, they're never quite adequate, you know. Mm. There's always... Um, something else. There's always the, um, you know, the symbolism that you can't quite yeah, analyze sort of in that way. Or, yeah. And Price, like for example, Price did this video called The Tent, mm -hmm. which is about the British Systems Group of Artists. Okay, I don't think I've seen this video. Oh, it's fascinating, yeah. and it tells you a lot about her because she was really fascinated by this very sort of pedantic, very interesting, systematic style of art that this group did. But at the same time, and the at the same time, she's quite sort of um, cynical, you could say, about it. Yeah. And um, you know, she clearly is trying to say this is fascinating, but it's just not enough, you know, because um, there's always going to be something else that's mm. more bit more rock and roll if you like yeah. a bit more um, and she actually actually um, breaks into the buzzcock song boredom mm. which is sort of like where the video starts to break into her revealing her sort of disdain in a way along alongside her respect for these kind of systems but that's her I think where she she's very interested in a, a grammar mm. That's why I was looking at this book on the grammar of poetics, you know, grammar of poetry. Mm. And she quotes uh, um, a bit of T.S. Eliot, and then there's obviously there's lots of stuff about Shakespeare. So that's where I kind of came around to using that. But it was this idea of a, a very strict structure that at the same time is kind of wild, mm. which is what you get in Hamlet, mm. you know. And you get these layers, like in that scene that I mentioned. It's very highly structured, sort of line by line. Mm. But the effect is quite wild. And it's, you know, so that's... And that's a little bit how I see her, this exhibition, really. Yeah. It's, um, you know, it's delightful, actually. It's really worth yeah. seeing because it's very rigorously done. Um, and as you said, you know, you want to really look at each piece because so much is she brings out so much from the work but at the same time there's a, a sort of mad energy going mm. on you know that great well that's still on its show that's uh, the uh, elizabeth price's show is still on at the whitworth gallery i think right through to the end of october yes correct and um, before traveling to the Bec uh, the delaware pavilion on bexel on sea and the glen vivian gallery in swansea so maybe you can catch it in one of those destinations in the coming months. Uh, we'll maybe come back to you, David. Uh, but in the meantime, let's move on to Catherine Lloyd, uh, who's been 
traveling around London for the last <laughs> well, traveling around London seeing a few shows for us um, uh, you reviewed a number of galleries mm-hmm. uh, including Pump House Gallery Lord Genelard and Barbican uh, I think we'll start with the Pump House Gallery which you start in your review yep. and uh, the two the two people you cover is Samara Scott and Sally Troughton yep. um, should we start with Sally Troughton's <coughs> work uh, yeah, do you want to outline yep. what that work is and yeah we can start with that so it's her first um, solo exhibition. She's quite a young artist. Um, and it incorporates materials, um, wood, liquid, um, screen grabs. It, it's quite, um, there's a lot of materials going on. And it, it's made in response to the architecture of the building. So that it centers around these huge expanses of silk. And the way that the gallery works is that it hangs from the balconies of the upper gallery and kind of billows down and the silk is um, blown around by domestic fans (coughs) and she's taken screen grabs of some of the seven wonders of the world I guess so she's she's um, included the Acropolis and um, the pyramids of Giza and she's enlarged them to the point that they're indecipherable so you Mm -hmm. can't tell what is on these pieces of silk and the colours of the desert almost become this kind of dusty pink, so they're quite beautiful things that you, you could wear them. They become almost like fashion objects. Right. And I, I really went round and round with the show. It, it, she's, she's making work about kind of the dislocation of place and the way that we move between real environments and mapped environments. So it's that shifting terrain for us between, I guess, experiencing something in, in the real world and then and experiencing something on Google Maps or the way that it's represented digitally. So the work is this kind of murky, transient nature of the silk and the expanded images which become almost the nature of this, mm. that it's not placeable in the way that we experience history or the way we understand information. It becomes... It exists nowhere, I guess. But I, f- I just... It reminds me a little bit of Thomas Ruff's work, actually. Yeah. You're saying it, uh, that yeah. his images, his pixelation. Yeah, but I think the, the difference is that I d- it, it becomes unclear why she's using this source material because you don't know what the source material is. Like Thomas right. Ruff has that yeah, determination. D- yeah, yeah, you understand what he's referencing, and and you know maybe in a title, or you yeah. understand where that source material comes from. Without an exhibition text or any explanation here. It's not. It's not clear what what the image is. So our our experience, or the way that we shift between these two things, I think it comes from the relationship between um, a referent and its image. Like that really direct correlation. <laughs> Images of places are enough because they are enough because they they look like the place, and and we kind of buy into that. But this has that. I think it just it becomes an aestheticized version of the idea of dislocation rather than actually interpreting that grimy kind of really digital mm-hmm. aesthetic. So I just kept going round and round because it's it, she's doing these things and that could be this the nature of it itself but then it just I just kept coming back round like I understand the esoteric nature of her work but then I don't understand why she uses the source material if she's not going to directly yeah. reference that mm. yeah it does seem a bit arbitrary 
perhaps. Yeah, it, I, I think also because they're so beautiful. Yeah. And because the way they engage with the space, it it, it becomes hard to see past that. I think she maybe. That that is kind of usurps the work a little bit just because it looks so wearable. Mm. And they're quite. I mean, they're quite big objects, aren't mm. they? I mean, they're, they're, I mean, the huge sort of silk. Uh, yeah. I don't know, ca uh, curtains, uh, I suppose, or uh, hangings. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> they're, almost they're like tapestry scale. Yeah. You know, they're quite yeah. monumental. And outside of the uh, outside of the building is Samara Scott's work, yes. which is installed in the uh, the, the pools. The mirror or the pools. Ponds. Yeah. yeah. Um, so Samara Scott has filled the pools with a lot of industrial materials, kind of sculpted fabric and dyes, which are used to stop algae photosynthesizing underwater. Um, and they kind of collect, there's there's one pool which is more of a green colour and one is more of an orange colour. I read a review today <laughs> which said that the orange one was not as successful as the multicoloured one. Right. I don't know why, but apparently <laughs> that, that's true. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's, there's something a bit odd about, um, I guess, filling water with things that are, it, it feels like pollution, but it's not, it's kind of like an infiltration into the natural um, and it you know thinking about how that's going to develop but it's 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 closing early to un unforeseen technical yeah some technical issues yeah. with the so i'm not sure because yeah. i was in i was interested to see what would happen to the work but i you know I what if it would deteriorate or yeah, uh, yeah. break down jamie actually you reviewed a show of samara scott's boroughs didn't you a while ago at eastside yeah. project space mm -hmm. um I don't remember you being so favourable about that show in retrospect, but oh no, <laughs> I, I, I love the work okay. totally. Like I, um, yeah, the, the the work makes an appeal that you can't ignore because its kind of components are essentially calibrated to make an appeal to you through their sense, through their colours, um, and that show was really successful in terms of the way it evolved okay. into this kind of. Um, this show seems so different state. to me because it's not got that kind of really gaudy co consumerist pop culture yeah. thing it's it's the materials she uses are so different mm, mm. It's, it's yeah it's, it's quite a move away i think yeah, and I the sh should we move on to the laura genela show of uh yeah, which is a collection yeah. of uh three artists work uh marta Eknes, sam austin and andrew miller yeah um to, to briefly describe this is curated by hannah norali and linton talbot yeah. isn't it um yeah. do you want to describe a little bit about this show um the works are quite, I mean, again, this is quite a formalist show and it's about the relationship between object and site and environment. And all the objects are quite corporate. They have a really unique um, nature where they, even in a gallery environment, they still feel very corporate and grim and just unappealing. There's something very unattractive about all the objects that they've chosen. And it's in, the gallery is also quite, difficult you to get to one of the works you have to walk through their kind of kitchen so it's almost a domestic environment but in a, not in a welcoming way in a way yeah. that you feel like you're trespassing or you're kind of other to the show yeah i think we're missing one work in an image consisting of a sort of uh sandblasted or uh sort of locker yeah yeah alongside a, a yeah. christmas tree that yeah. has sort of been yeah, yeah decimated and also he i completely missed one of his works because he's got a coin screwed to the wall yeah. and i spent about 10 minutes trying to find it and i, and I couldn't <laughs> I think it's just this, they want to present something that's quite difficult. It's very unforgiving as a show. It's its almost defiant in, in mm -hmm. its presentation. And um, Marte Eknes, especially, she's 
I mean, she's quite uh, an interesting artist. She she gives herself these manifestos, which I read online, which are, this is an example of one of her. So this is something she sets for herself. Yeah. Um, the work must be simultaneously, must simultaneously connect and get disconnect from its surroundings, decanter its sites of power and resist control of subjectivity and coercing of opinion. So she just, she sets these really strict rules for herself, which are really interesting. And actually, in a way, I found them more engaging than the yeah. works on show. But <coughs> she has... Um, a chemical sock which is i mean it, it is a chemical sock which is used to stop s chemical spillages right so it's got a kind of preventative function but it's yeah. left in the gallery like a snake i mean i guess in a kind of way that jamie's going to discuss with kitty clark it's got um kind of humanist qualities in a very primitive way very different to the work that kitty clark makes but it's got that relationship between something that's digital and synthetic mm and organic at the same time. Um, but yeah, the, because the show is so dependent on the ready-made, uh, I think the inclusion of Sam Austin's work is really important because he his videos are really playful. Um, he has this... Assess I, I, in my review, I kind of called it Hammer-esque, but actually I think it's much more specific than that. It's kind of... Well, it's got a mixture of things. I was thinking about it. It's like John Carpenter and... Like a bit of giallo films, a bit of Hammer, but then also it really reminds me of kind of nineties children's TV show like The Trap Door and oh right okay like funny yeah, bones. It's, anim it's an animation, <coughs> is that right? Yeah, yeah, it's an animation, and he has a very he the way he uses lettering kind of goes across all of his work, um, and it, yeah, it's got text kind of coming out and things disappearing and melting into each other, and it's got it's really dark but childish at the same time and I think it really adds something to that show that if it didn't have it it would be in danger of being a bit too brutal a bit too inaccessible mm. because of its you know investigation into the ready-made so yeah I think his inclusion is quite important the way that he he creates a framework which makes the works um feel yeah just m a more bit playful more yeah, yeah 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 um but I'm just wondering if we should move on to the Ragnar Kjartansson or whether yeah. there's anything else to add to that um, to that show, but um, maybe we'll come back to that. Uh, so Ragnar Kjartansson uh, had a retrospective at the Barbican. Mm -hmm. I guess it's a sort of mid-career survey of his work. He's must be in his mid-40s, I He's think. He's 40, I think, exactly. Oh, 40, yeah. okay. Uh, and so this brought together a number of his video works and installations, mm -hmm. uh, including some performance elements. Do you want to describe the initial piece as you come in? Um, yeah. Because it's quite uh, an immersive... Well, it's a series of immersive works, really, but the first piece yeah. particularly so. So as you come into the gallery, there are ten men walking around. Um, some of them are in dressing gowns, some of them are kind of half-dressed, and they're strumming guitars and singing and drinking beer and just wandering to, in, to the toilets, mm. back into the gallery space and just around, and there's mattresses, mattresses strewn across the floor and sofas. Um, they're kind of like student men you know just kind of not really embracing life in a way yeah. just kind of <laughs> singing their songs to themselves mm. um and they're singing a song and in the background there's a projected film which is um a woman um and she is fantasizing about seducing a plumber in her kitchen um and it's there's no sound but the what the the lyrics that the the men are singing is the dialogue from the film yeah <coughs> and in reality the woman in the film is um his mother and the plumber is his father 
<coughs> so it's a fictional sex sex scene which is acted between his parents um and it is part of his family history that just after this happened he was born yeah so in some ways it's kind of an autobiographical piece about how he was conceived it's yeah and it's sort of shot in this sort of uh, it has that sort of pink uh, soft yeah uh, very focus. fluffy uh, even soft porn like yeah, uh, yeah. mid 70s so he's kind of retroactively fitting his memory yes. around this moment yeah. through a kind of filmic lexicon I guess yes. um, but he's got because he's using these um, they keep, they're always referenced as troubadours these these men who are this like such a instantly recognisable stereotype of someone everyone knows a man like that or a boy like that and he <laughs> he is almost mocking himself as this um man who bemoans his own existence and that this is how he came to be and it's this rewriting of his his own history really but um in a, in a kind of self-mocking way uh, you mean uh, Ragnar Kjotunson himself yes. as an artist yeah, yeah. i mean he, he has this sort of pathos and dry humor around his own yeah uh personality both as an artist and a kind of yeah the biography of his life mm -hmm. as well um yeah, and that plays out. I mean, I think the the, the sort of boredom of those strumming male singers yeah. kind of has that ennui um, and also that kind of, uh, I would say, even a European existentialism as mm. well. Uh, it's particular to that moment of, like, uh, yeah, alienation. And yeah, kind exactly. Of, uh, it's yeah, embedded, perhaps, in a kind of, yeah, European and particularly Scandinavian even uh, cultures, I suppose. Yeah, he, he talks about Scandinavia quite a lot. And and the fact that it's a very bleak place, which he just says that he loves. He's really interested. I mean, he, he's an artist who only becomes involved in things that he genuinely respects. And But he approaches everything with a humour and a, and a kind of critical mm -hmm. analysis. And he, yeah, he, he thinks Scandinavia is uniquely bleak, um, but something that, yeah, he just thinks it's hilarious at the same time. Yeah, I guess one video that particularly, I suppose, uh, what comes to mind actually is the, uh, the video, early video of him, I think from 2002, where he's dressed as death. Oh, uh, death and the children. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, I really loved that piece when I was walking around. And he, I read that he, it was his girlfriend, his then girlfriend asked him to help her look after some children. And what he decided to do was dress up as death and teach them about death. Um, and so there's this video of him dressed as death with a, a coming out and, and making them jump in the graveyard and yeah. leading them around and kind of they're berating him saying you're short and ugly yeah. you're not death and it's quite you know it's quite profound but in in a really irresponsible way everything about it is quite reckless um but you know one child says you and god are enemies and he's like no you've got it all wrong we're mates you know it's yeah. just it, yeah I think yeah, he constantly punctures or deflates yes. the kind of, uh, I suppose, the the grandeur perhaps of these two subjects, life, death. I yeah. mean, like, there's some wonderful comments, isn't there, from the kids, like, oh, your scythe should be sharp and yeah, it's not as it's cardboard. Yeah, it's made out of paper, yeah. yeah. There's wonderful sort of uh, descriptions of that. Um, but alongside that, then, he also posits this other, uh, I think, a six or seven screen installation video piece of uh, filmed in upstate New York. Oh, the visitors. Yeah. And uh, yeah. it's sort of, again, this uh, idealist, like, idyll, really, mm -hmm. um, of this, you know, nice house in these wonderful yes. grounds. Yeah. Uh, do you want to describe a little bit about that piece as well? Yeah, so that's um, a multi-channel video installation, and it's um, 
I think it's nine, and they're, they're all musicians, and they're each in one room of the house. And over the course of a, one day, yeah. they film this piece. So they're all interacting with each other when you see it, and, and the music comes together. But at, at that time, when they were being filmed, they were all very individually kind of yeah. housed and couldn't you know, interact with each other directly. And it's um, just this really immersive, uh, yeah, uh, idyllic environment really and and he it's the same refrain over and over again and he's in the bath singing um i fall into my feminine ways just over and over and over again and it's just it's kind of indicative of his practice where it's about endurance and kind of repetition <coughs> and he says he likes the idea of taking something big and if you blow it up and or you repeat it over and over and over again does that make it mean nothing and it it kind of especially in that work i guess because it's the house is so grand everything about it is so grand um and he's singing this refrain just the repetition whether the, what that makes it mean mm. um, yeah there's yeah. in fact a lot of the work hinges on that subject of mm -hmm. repetition uh upstairs there's numerous videos where he's repeating the same line yeah. About, I think, uh, only love, something about love. Uh, There's um, God, in which he says, is it sorrow can conquer. Uh, yeah, sorry, something, something something about sorrow and love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's, yeah, he just sings the same yeah. thing or repeats the same thing over and over for hours. Um, in the same way, he got the national to, yeah. to repeat their song, Sorrow, for six hours straight. And they'd just sing the same song. They'd finish that song yeah. and they'd start the next song. Um, and another piece, um, Me and My Mother, which is five videos filmed. The first one was in 2000. And every five years, he gets his mother to spit in his face. Yeah, I think this is one of the, the best pieces mm. in the, in the show. I mean, the one, I certainly have seen this uh, stage several times, probably. I've seen it over the years. Um, so, yeah, I, I remember seeing each iteration of those, or various, or various yeah. numbers of them. I um, think it's just because it was started in 2000, which is when he was an art college student and I think he just thought it was he's mm. he just thought it was a good idea and you can see them both not trying to laugh and and it's, it's just a really kind of bizarre ridiculous video but it's become something that they do every five mm. years and it's something that permeates their life and um, their relationship and the fact that he's just stuck with it and just carried it through there's just this it crystallizes his kind of I just think he's got this lack of responsibility, which means that every work that he makes can be authentic and theatrical at the same time. And his mother's quite a famous actress in Iceland. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can tell that. I mean, she she carries herself yeah, particularly she, well. To, <laughs> towards the end, she said that she imagined he was one of the bankers who got the Iceland in, into <laughs> the financial crash in 2008. So that's why it gets more vehement and aggressive, I think. Yeah, she does a very good job. Yeah. I, I think we should quickly move on because we're going to run out of time if I don't. Um, but thanks, uh, Catherine. Uh, hopefully we can talk about it as well later. But uh, Jamie, uh, you uh, profiled an artist, uh, Kitty Clark. Um, I don't know how many people would have seen her work. She's had a few opportunity, a few shows in London over the last few years. Do you want to start by introducing some of her uh, sort of the way she works, really, and some of her ideas that sort of filter through that practice. Yeah, t totally. And she's a multimedia artist who I think her work at the moment is kind of characterised by explorations in robotics, um, soft furnishings, virtual environments. 
Um, she had a couple of shows recently, one which is a solo show at public exhibitions in East London and another which is a group show at Residence Gallery, um, also in East London. Um, but I came across her work years ago in a slightly different context. Um, that's because she was one of the founding members of Famicom, who were a kind of noise comics slash uh, sort of underground graphics collective. Oh, right. Okay. Um, so she's got this kind of underground credential that you know <laughs> sort of uh, sort of underscores some of the things that she's gone on to do within um, a critical art practice. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the, the work that I w was really kind of drawn to recently was started last year and then only recently exhibited, but it's um, a kind of disembodied um, animatronic hand that um, you're not necessarily aware of the provenance of this artifact, but uh, it, it looks as though it's the kind of thing that's come off a, a sort of well-polished um, animatronic love doll. Um, and it just sits on top of this acrylic plinth and taps out this listless rhythm as mm. though it's bored. Um, and it's kind of a key in some ways to some of the um, themes of, of horror and trauma that are present in her work in, in, in a kind of tongue-in-cheek manner, but they're all, always these um, kind of comedic objects that have these uh, sort of despairing gulfs mm. opening up from them, I think. And this, this object in particular really captivated me. Yeah, it's, it's called... Uh, What's it called again? It's called the, My Love, the Idle, Idle Woman. Woman. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And you talk a little bit about the uh, the sort of uh, the associations to a tapping hand, uh, the sort of petulance, and also the kind of uh, what does it mean? Is she tapping out waiting, or what is this? Uh, what is this tapping hand? Yeah, I mean, one, one of the things that it, it kind of quite scarily alludes to is um, this sort of oceanic sense of um, artificial intelligence being privy to a kind of sensuality that humans aren't. Um, and that's the thing that really comes to the fore in that piece, that there's, um, there's a, a kind of frustration um, expressed by this artifact mm. with the limitations that have been imposed on it by human users. Um, and it's kind of weird because ro robotics function in, in sort of like deeply sensual ways in a lot of her works. There's another piece called Crack an Egg on Your Head, which is um, part of a range of soft furnishings, but it's essentially a pillow with an animatronic tongue mm -hmm. protruding from it. And... It's kind of, it, it sort of ties into this weird position she has, which I, I find really compelling in a way, because it's, um, it's basically an attempt to come to terms with what uh, position you can embody within um, a kind of consumerist malaise, and whether or not there's kind of agency in trying to maintain the belief in the promise of a commodity form that you know to be slightly mm -hmm. kind of flawed or... Uh, making kind of dubious uh, claims towards its its benefits to you, and so uh, this piece, cracking egg on your head, is it's it's a, a consumer object that is almost like enthusiastically um, ready to please you. You know, it's kind of going beyond um, its its initial purpose to kind of excessively give to you, and it's that idea is present in so many of her works. This idea that. Um, there's a kind of like an, an excess that you can kind of tap into or there's an excess that she wants to um, believe in mm. and is and is fully kind of willing to be credulous in the in the face of. But it's not so strictly adhered. To, I mean, like the idea of the, I suppose, the commoditization of technology in terms of sexuality or sensuality, mm. like mm. various objects that people use for whatever reasons in terms mm. of their mm. sex life. Um, I don't think she's, she's not really... Uh, let's say, adopting that vernacular, it's kind of maybe shifting it out of that orbit a little bit, perhaps? Yeah, yeah, yeah. T totally. I mean, the um, 
I think the thing to bear in mind with the robotics, and there's something that I kind of make a, a a brief allusion to at the end, but just this idea of queer family making. Yeah. Um, she's she's a maker in the sense that she she comes through this lineage of um, kind of whole whole earth catalog thinking in the 1960s, hackers in the in the 1990s. Um, but the kind of self-fabrication of um, technological objects that are expressive and that have a, a sort of tailored personal purpose. Um, but the thing that I think is really important to bear in mind with her robotics is that, um, you know, this is something that's occurring at the, uh, you know, the, the sort of end point of a very peculiar labor history in which um, a certain division of labor has been drawn on mm -hmm. gendered grounds. So, you know, the, the history of um, computing, like the term itself, computer, was um, given to the people that computed the information that would keep a company kind of processing and, and anticipating market shifts. Mm. And um, there's just something kind of uh, very um, kind of peculiar about the agency that's exerted in, in that, in terms of taking this um, computational language and turning it to the production of things that then require care and uh, it's a, a sort of cyclical um, loop of production and, and kind of experience. And they're, they're public objects, but they're things that she feels like a deep kind of personal affinity with. Yeah, and also uh, there's a video work as well, uh, Wheatfield. So it's not always objects that she works with. She also works with video as well, or is that...? Um yeah, no, no, totally. Yeah. She, um, in the exhibition, at public exhibitions, there was a huge uh, video projection called Wheatfield Feel No. And um, Feel No, I think is the name of one of her brands. She creates these sort of fictional brands that are kind of like open source corporate entities. Mm. Um, Feel No is one which is um, an allusion to uh, kind of lifestyle thinking of um, like wholesomeness and, and healthiness. Of course, yeah. Um, the other one is New Scum, which is kind of the, the opposite of that. It's this like nihilistic, despairing identity. Um, but uh, Wheatfield itself was made within a, a kind of game development um, uh, program called Unity. And it's basically just a simulated cloudscape and, and kind of uh, gently swaying wheat field that has this like lulling effect. So there's something kind of like deeply hip hypnotic and sort of sensual about its address to you as a, <coughs> as a viewer. Um, Although you describe one VR work where there's this noise, this threatening noise in the background of party music or is it dance music that's sort of yeah, perhaps infiltrating this otherwise serenity. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're ba basically it's my second experience actually of a virtual reality work. So my, right. my first kind of proper um, you know, Oculus Rift experience would have been um, uh, Sid Sol, Monica Hansen's yeah. show at Gasworks, which is kind of incredible in its own way. But uh, this was with an Oculus Rift headset and... Uh, you're basically just traversing this uh, barren landscape and through this fog intermittently comes the sound of an invisible uh, threat and, and it's um, I guess like a sort of dance music track appended to this sort of sprite that's just kind of moving around the environment mm. and it's um, it's really unusual like it's a, and a really a really unusual um, evocation of uh, online threat in a way <laughs> it just uh, it, it sort of um, yeah. really kind of compounds and crystallizes that experience in a way that i hadn't encountered before um yeah i suppose it's the idea of what the endless terrain offers us and then within that there's this idea of the the uh the neighbor in effect uh, mm, that's mm. pushing into that and kind of you know the, the the build up of what that means in terms of 
even in this dream landscape, the uh, yeah, the, the other yeah. is there to annoy us. Well, this is one of the things that I, I mentioned briefly is a, a really fantastic essay by Nora Khan, who writes mm. for Rhizome and a few other places. But it's um, it's called Towards a Poetics of Artificial Superintelligence, and it was published recently in After Us, which is a, a kind of it's a little a little bit bang on trend, but it's like an accelerationist okay. journal uh, <laughs> come newspaper. Um, but this piece is amazing, and she talks about. Um, the way in which like anthropomorphic thinking has limited our anticipations of what artificial intelligence could be. And she says uh, something along the lines of uh, what would happen if an AI um, didn't inhabit a body? What if it were something di diaphanous, something um, diffuse, something mm -hmm. distributed? Um, and then she creates this series of lyrical riffs around those different ideas of the potentialities of different AI um, forms and how we could respond to them, how they might respond to us. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think the thing that's really uh, the thing that's really kind of interesting about Kitty's work, and it kind of comes out of an experience that I had in 2015, the Royal Academy um, Spring Symposium that was curated by Adam Framoui and oh, Cecile yeah. B. Evans, which was really amazing group of um, uh, technologists, roboticists, uh, robot salesmen, uh, talking about um, embodiment and um, artificial intelligence. And there's this one guy, uh, his name, I'm going to name and shame, uh, it's called Alan Blackwell, who's a sort of reader, reader in interdisciplinary design at the University of Cambridge's computer laboratory. And he did this presentation called Inside the Sexy Robot. And it was, it was absolutely insane. It was basically just um, a, a male technologist's uh, wank fantasy of right. what the potential of, fe you know, a kind of specifically female gendered mm -hmm. robotic um, form would be. And the whole presentation just fell so flat. And you just got this kind of real um, divide had been brought about between, um, I, I think, quite like an insular um, uh, like discourse and an, an insular kind of mode of production. Mm. And then uh, a group of people who were present who were from the humanities and had a very different um, expectation of what the kind of possibilities of this technology were. Um, and I think Kitty's work is almost like a, a kind of like a very necessary corrective or a, a very kind of um, potent address to those kind of assumptions that are being made within the industry. And whether or not they'll take note of each other is, is kind of doubtful because her things are primitive and they don't have the same kind of um, industry reach and, and they're not disseminated in the same way. But it just feels necessary that this kind of counter dialogue is, is taking place. I would have thought, yeah, I can see that actually. Um, I think we should start trying to wrap things up here actually. I think we're closing up. Is that right? We've got, yeah. Um, in that case, it just leaves me to thank uh, Catherine Lloyd, James Sutcliffe and David Livington for joining this evening. Um, many thanks to you all for taking part in today's program. Um, as always, uh, the, comment, uh, the, the articles that I discussed are in the present issue of Art Monthly. That's the uh, September issue. Um, and that leaves me to say goodnight to all and to say thank you to our listeners. Uh, David, you wish to Add something there? Um, uh, good night. Oh, good night. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Yeah. Thank you for I'll listening. definitely be checking out this um, Children and the Grim Reaper piece that with Catherine afterwards. Yeah, yeah, you should. It's online, actually. You can watch the whole thing. It's yeah. not a very okay. long video, so you can get it online. Wonderful. Okay, many thanks for listening. Good night. Bye-bye.